I'm Glenn Robinson, and I've spent the last 30 years as a healthcare leader and overseeing large organizations. And before that, I was in the news business. And I'm Jacob Robinson, his son. I've spent the last five years building a business and learning lessons of leadership along the way. And this is our podcast, Chasing What Matters. On this podcast, we're going to interview leaders from all walks of life and hear their stories of successes and failures and what has made them become who they are today and how their faith and families played a role in their lives and leadership styles. During these interviews, we will be discussing things from business to politics, healthcare to nonprofit, and anything in between to find out how these leaders are chasing what matters in their work and personal life. So welcome to another episode of Chasing What Matters. Hey everyone, we're so glad you could join us again for our podcast. I think you're going to be glad that you joined today. Our guest has an incredible story about his unusual upbringing, then an equally amazing story about his professional life. And I know you're going to enjoy meeting him on today's episode of Chasing What Matters. I'm your co-host, Jacob Robinson. And I'm your other co-host, Glenn Robinson. Our guest today is Jeff Brenner. Jeff is the Chief Executive Officer of Triumph Business Capital. Prior to joining Triumph Business Capital in 2019, he spent 20-plus years in the healthcare industry. He built a portfolio of healthcare service companies, spanning revenue cycle, supply chain, insurance, and performance improvement consulting. He led the enterprise to best-in-class financial performance amid significant industry disruption. Jeff has served on more than 10 domestic and international boards and holds multiple insurance and financial security licenses. He has also completed several unorthodox leadership programs, which we'll hear a little bit later in our podcast. Jeff and his wife, Emily, have two sons, Braden and Tate, and they live in Dallas, Texas. And Rhonda and I are proud to call Jeff and Emily great friends. Jeff, welcome to Chasing What Matters. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Jeff, before we get started, we we have one listener uh, who is a faithful listener who is always suggesting that we find more guests who do just who who don't just have normal upbringings uh, is what they say. Uh, I know from talking with my dad uh, that you have an incredible story about growing up. Would you mind telling our listeners about that, where you grew up and, and what those early years were like? Absolutely. And I think this will certainly qualify as unorthodox. Um, I was born to two hippies that were protesting the Vietnam War in Colorado. And if you've ever been to Boulder, that was a focus point, a collection point for the hippies during the Vietnam War, and and some would say it still is. And I was born to these two hippies that, in all honesty, probably got married because she was pregnant. And, you know, the wedding was five months before my birth, and it was just a different era back then where it was less common for a single woman just to go ahead and have the baby on her own. Um, We lived in the back of a truck, a pickup truck, that had a very simple camper fastened to it, uh, heated by a a small gas stove, no electricity, obviously, and, you know, more or less lived this nomadic, almost homeless uh, existence for the first three years of my life. Um, My father was a former Hells Angel. He had active warrants for his arrest. And the actual name he gave me on my birth certificate was one of his many aliases. So, you know, this is a guy that was a product of a really, really tough upbringing and was a very challenging uh, start to life. Uh, We eventually moved out of the truck and into a school bus, of all things. So all those hippie images you have of, you know, flowers painted on the, the walls and everything like that. 
we didn't have the flowers, but I think everything else was pretty accurate. And just to give you a small story about what that's like, same thing, no electricity, just a gas stove. And uh, the only lighting we had was through candles. But if you've ever been on a school bus, you probably noted there's no insulation. So in the Colorado Rockies in the winter, that's a problem. So what would happen, and this is just a, a fun anecdote, is the, the condensation from the heat would form at the top of the bus at the roof, and it would form beads, and beads get heavy and fall to the floor. But the floor was below freezing because all the hot air rose to the top of the bus. So if you were over five feet tall on that bus during the winter, you would try to gain traction on the ice sheet beneath you while your head felt like it was in a sauna. So it was just a, it was a very, it was a very bizarre way to live. And, and that's how it started. How, now, what age, is, what age was that uh, that you were living in the school bus? So I would say that started when I was two. I have a younger brother that was born right when I was about to turn two. And I think it, it just wouldn't have worked to have four people trying to live in the back of the pickup truck. So it forced, it forced them to find another place for us to live. Wow. And how long did you live there? Uh, about a year. Okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, and, and Jeff, when did you find out your father's true identity, and, and how did all that happen? Well, and, and that's the crazy thing, because, you know, all the stories about him, Glenn, I didn't know any of this until I was in my 40s. You know, my mom, uh, he was a very violent man. At I mean, when I was a toddler, uh, you know, he was raised very rough, so, you know, to make me tough at a toddler's age, he's he's punching you in the face, and want you to learn what it feels like to believe. And you can just imagine the torment that is for a mother watching, you know, a father do that to his son. Uh, he would take me to bars with him and uh, give me tequila till I passed out as a toddler. So this is, you know, this is a really, really abrasive guy. Uh, he had said many times if he didn't like the way my brother and I were turning out by the ages of six, that he would just take us into the, into the woods and kill us. And no one would ever find the bodies in the Colorado mountains. And, you know, obviously my mom wanting to get away from that, you know, he, he threatened her, if you ever try to leave me, I'm going to kill all three of you and leave you in the woods. So, you know, this was a really, really dark man who had a lot of things in his life that uh, had made him uh, the kind of person that once you're away, nobody wants to talk about. So um, my dad was not a topic for 40 years of my life that anybody wanted to talk about. And you don't remember anything before age three. Right. So I just knew I had this really dark, scary, and, and there's some kind of tr- trauma that comes with it, even if you don't remember it. Um, but the details of all this, Glenn, I didn't learn until I was in my 40s. And that was really by happenstance. I was trying to figure out, of all things, my whether I had a, a, any health issues I needed to be concerned about. What if he died in his 40s from something that was genetic? I mean, I started to think about that in my 40s. And the problem is the name on my birth certificate was an alias. So if you don't have a name, you really have a hard time tracking down somebody's identity. And it was purely through, I was sitting with my mom and I was asking her to remember anything that would help me piece together this man's name. And, you know, she just started piecing little things together. So for example, she said, you know, we went to visit his, his parents one time and the name on the mailbox was different than the name he used. So here I am trying to ask my mother to go back 45 years and remember what was the name on that mailbox 
So we're on Google, you know, searching first names, last names. You know, his first name was an alias as well. But she had some ideas about what he might have been called. And literally, we were getting no hits on Google, nothing. And then I got one hit, uh, a marriage certificate in Montana, of all places. And I just said to my mom, she was sitting right across from me. I said, this can't be him. And I read the name of the bride and the groom and her face just sank because the name of the bride was her best friend in Colorado. So now I knew what legal name wow. he was at least using now. And at that point, Glenn, it was just quick work. You got social media, ancestry. You got all these different networks online where you can start to put together a family tree without ever contacting the person. And that's what I did. Wow. Wow. Now, how about the relationship with your mom through these years? And, and, and at what age did your father disappear out of your life? Yeah. So I was, I was three and, you know, given the threats that he had made both to my brother and me and also to my mom, she had to orchestrate an escape. This wasn't, you know, this wasn't going to be a normal separation. There's no assets to divide and there were going to be no attorneys. So she had to wait for him to travel alone. And as soon as uh, he did that, she had no car, no money, but she called her parents and, you know, her father, my grandfather found out where she was, said, I'll be there in seven hours and seven hours to the minute later, he pulled up and, and rescued us out of there. Now there's still the concern he's going to come after us. Right. And that was, that was a concern. I think my mom lived with my entire childhood is, you know, when is he going to come? When is he going to follow through on his threats? Surely he would figure out where we went. Wow. Wow. And where did y'all relocate, Jeff? So we we moved to the only place we had to go, which was where her parents lived. And uh, her her mother and father were picture-perfect greatest generation. You know, he had fought in three wars, military officer. He was an entrepreneur after uh, retiring from the military. And uh, just a wonderful couple. So we moved there just because that was the safest place we could go. And we had we had nothing. I mean, we didn't have uh, anything. So my mom started working just hourly jobs. She didn't have a college degree. Um, you know, found that a bartender was a really good job. If you're a single parent, it gives you the days with your children and you work at night while they sleep. And you can you know, generally earn better than, than minimum wage, you know, in those kinds of jobs. So that's what she did my entire, entire childhood. Uh, started off staying with the grandparents and then quickly moved into a trailer, lived in a trailer park for several years, rented a house. And then ultimately she saved enough money to put a down payment on a, on a small house and a reasonably rough neighborhood, but it was certainly better than a truck and better than a bus. Wow. 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 And then take us back to those high school years. When did you begin thinking about college? Was that a, a desire that you kind of always thought through, or was it something that your mom encouraged or your grandparents? How did that happen? Well, it's a mix of everything. My my grandfather, who grew up a, a poor farm boy in Michigan and um, really took advantage of everything the military could do in terms of training, education, master's degrees, all of that, uh, but he had always emphasized education is the one thing that no one can take from you. So I had that, you know, that voice on my shoulder. But the thing that I remember the most, Glenn, was my mom. I remember one morning she sat me down and she said, you know, I lost my job last night. And I remember, I think I was 13. And I just remember I felt the fragility 
of her work. Like it's like it, it's it's that easy to to have it taken from you. There's no severance. There's no employment agreements. There's there's just nothing, right? And and a, a bad manager could just decide I don't like you and decide you're done. And I played football, so I I, I walked in the next day and quit football, and I got a job washing dishes till one in the morning, so I could help uh, take care of of our family. And Glenn, I would say within two weeks, I was in the guidance counselor office, asking them what are what are academic scholarships that I could that I could try for because. Mm-hmm. No disrespect to bartenders, but I didn't want that kind of fragility to the right. to the career. So we found one that is, in fact, how I went to Florida State later was uh, was an academic scholarship that I could qualify for. But I had I had to start early, and and I did. Now, when it came time, obviously, you talked about looking and looking for um, financial support. It was FSU was that was that decision clearly based off of that, or or did you? Go there for another reason. Uh, what drew you there? Uh, it, maybe it was just uh, scholarships. Well, it was a, the the scholarship I earned was for any state school in Florida, so I had some choices. Okay. The reason why Florida State was the best choice for me, and listen, this was not like this great exercise in wisdom and planning. I never even visited the campus. It was the closest major school to where my mom lived, and as the oldest son, I still had this feeling that. I want to be within two hours in case she needs me. Now, my mom's strong. She ended up never needing me, and this was more of a you know, separation of an older son, probably more about me than it was about her. But that was the entire reason I chose Florida State was it's close. I can get back quickly if I'm needed. It's a major university. I wanted to go somewhere pretty big, and I had a full ride because of the academics. Wow. Wow. Well, tell us about those early years of your career post-FSU. Yeah, so uh, I wanted to be a doctor, which is which is interesting. And I was I wanted to go to med school and do that do that whole journey. And I ended up I ended up not having the the conviction to do that. It's kind of a weird thing to say. I think it was more idealistic than it was true passion. So I did the next best thing, and I had a friend who had gone into medical device sales, a great friend of mine, and and he helped me get a job. And I lived in Florida, graduating from Florida, and they, you know, at the time, I mean, Glenn, Jacob, you would never do this now, but when you're right out of school, you'll take a job, and it's on the condition you'll go wherever they send you. And they couldn't tell me where I was going to go, but I knew they had two open areas. One was in Florida, one was in Texas. I'm already in Florida. Surely that's where they're going to send me, so I accept. And then a week later, they said, congratulations, you're going to Dallas. You know, you got 30 days to get there, and I mean, that's how I got here, and, you know, funny story i watched the movie urban cowboy you know with john travolta and i thought that's where i was going so i'm thinking man i gotta i gotta get boots and figure out how to ride mechanical bulls must be the thing i didn't realize dallas is very different than galveston houston right but (laughs) but yeah so i had i had a, a again not a no vetting just let's go packed up the car and uh dallas has been a wonderful choice i i love texas i joke with my family back in florida if there was ever, you know, a civil conflict between Texas and Florida, I'm, I'm fighting for Texas. I like it. I like it. Well, Jeff, I mean, what an amazing story so far. And then uh, you really just have an amazing career at, at uh, VHA Texas. Uh, tell our listeners about VHA, what it is, and uh, some of your roles and responsibilities there. Yeah, so VHA uh, – 
no longer exists, but it was uh, a fantastic uh, national network of community-based healthcare systems. And, you know, back when consolidation was occurring on the, on the investor-owned sector of healthcare, this was the answer that, that the not-for-profits formed, right? It was a way for them to form together without merging assets, but they could work together and achieve economies of scale and do a lot of the things to, to be competitive with, with the other sectors. Um, I came into that organization. Uh, I was hired to work and lead a relationship they had with a company that VHA had a majority interest in. So I was flying to Seattle a lot, and it was a, it was honestly a pretty easy job, Glenn. And it was at that point that I, I went and got my my master's degree because I could do it during the weekends. And uh, you know, I knew I wasn't going to stay there forever and do that job forever, but it was an opportunity to listen to my grandfather. And take advantage of the capacity and and continue my education while working full time. Um, I eventually moved from VHA, which had this big corporate entity, and at the time they had 18 regions around the country. I crossed the bridge and went to go work for one of the regions. And, and Glenn, that's actually how I met you. And um, while I was there, I was 38 years old, and I remember the CEO, who had become a really good mentor to me, announced that he was retiring. And I looked at I looked at myself. I'm 38 years old. There's no way I'm old enough to to be his successor. But I did believe that if I didn't at least try, uh, I would miss out. There would be two important things. I would miss out on the opportunity to interview with a board. That's so different than interviewing with a superior. So I just wanted that experience, and then I also wanted to signal to the board that I had the confidence to at least try. I think not to even try would have been um, just a signal I didn't want to send. So uh, went through that process. And the way the governance worked, you, you had to be unanimously selected by all 21 CEOs on the board. There was no abstains. There couldn't be a single decline. And so I threw my, my hat in the ring. And it was really funny because the, the recruiter was doing a national search. I, I know they had at least 100 qualified applicants for this job. It, it, was, a, it was a great CEO job. And um, he sat me down and he said, listen, um, the good news is you're, you're number seven. The bad news is they're only going to interview the top five. So I thought that was kind of a kind way of them to let me down, you know, as an internal candidate. But Glenn, I don't have any idea how I made it to the cut of five, but somehow I did. And I kept surviving the interview processes and then eventually uh, was named the CEO. And one of the great ironies of that is when it came down to two of us, the person against whom I was competing was also, I believe, 38 years old. So always try. Can you imagine the regret I would have had if I didn't try because I thought I was too young? And then I watched the the person who's named being my age. So um, that was a great journey. Wow. Well, let me let me ask you a question uh, off of that. If, if you're giving advice, and, and you just gave some great points, uh, so this may be the answer. But if you're giving advice to somebody younger, well, really any age, and and they think that job that just came available is is too far out of their their reach, right? It's it's too many levels above them. They're too young. They don't have enough experience at the company. Whatever the excuses we can build in our head, some may be legitimate, some may be self created. What advice would you give them to go through this uh, decision tree of do you throw your hat in the ring or not? Yeah, so that's a great question, and I got some really good advice, and and someone said it to me like this. Don't be afraid to put your hat in the ring as long as you're sure your head's not in it, right? So if 
if, like that. if by going for it, you're going to injure yourself somehow, either politically or just some other way, uh, you know, don't do it. But if you can have the discernment to realize, look, it, it may not be high odds. I may not even make it through the first or second cut, but let me signal to myself and to everybody else. I think that I have the potential to be more and do more. And as long as there's no downside to it, I think you go for it. Um, I've interviewed a lot of people that were in that bold position and I knew they weren't ready and they didn't get the job, but it did change the way I looked at them. And as other opportunities for promotion came up, that desire is, is important. You know, if somebody wants to do more and is willing to invest in themselves to develop themselves into something more, I think that's really critical to signal to, to those who are making the decisions. So I've, I've seen it from both sides, but as long as there's not, you know, a real fatal downside to trying, I would say be bold and go. I like that. Well, I had the privilege of serving on the board and one of those 20 something guys and gals that made that decision. And, and Jeff, I, I don't think I'm uh, breaking any confidence here. Uh, I, I can tell you why you rose to the top and one, you were a known entity, but second, we had seen the analytical skills uh, that you have because of so many of the presentations that you made. Uh, you're financially savvy, um, and uh, you made good recommendations to the board in your previous positions before um, landing that top slot. And so it was kind of like, why would we not give it to this guy? And so it was an easy decision. And, and looking back, it was a, a an, 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 take, take my part of it out of the equation. It was a great decision. It was a great decision. And, uh, and I really hats off to, um, the, uh, uh, the, the committee that we appointed to ferret out those initial interviews. And we're so glad that you took that role. Well, then your career kind of took a little bit different turn. Now you're the CEO of Triumph Business Capital. Uh, tell our listeners about your company and, uh, tell us uh, how you landed there. Sure. So, so I spent 11 years as CEO uh, in, in the role we just discussed. And I mean, that was a great experience, Glenn. I just, I mean, one thing I wanted to point out, because this, this is a credit to you and the other CEOs that I spent so much time with. Um, there's no substitute for being around good leaders and watching day in and day out how they, how they manage themselves and manage the teams around them, how they talk in closed quarters, um, the things they talk about. And it was, it was so accretive to my career just to have 21 CEOs that I could watch. The vast majority of things I saw, I wanted to, to take and run with. Occasionally I would see something and say, okay, I probably don't want to replicate that, but it had to be nine, nine to one great things. And only occasionally you would see something. And, and that's, that's a learning opportunity too. It's sometimes it's good to learn, Hey, I probably wouldn't handle that way. And had I not seen it, I wouldn't have known. Um, I got recruited away from healthcare and away from uh, that the, the prior company. It was such a bizarre and interesting connection of dots. I had a friend that I had known and through an organization called YPO, which is Young Presidents Organization, and it's 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 an amazing organization. And he was the CEO of a publicly traded bank. And we knew each other not super well, but well enough that when he asked me to go to breakfast, I immediately said yes. And I remember talking to Emily about it because I figured, you know, he's probably going to ask me about where our kids go to school and what 
excuse me, and what you think about the schools. Because I used to get that a lot. You know, you're always trying to do the intel on other private schools and whether you want to put your kid there. And my boys had gone to two different schools, and the comparison was always an interesting topic. So I thought that's what he was going to talk about. And he didn't mince words. I mean, we sat down, and within, I think, 15, 30 seconds, he's like, hey, would you ever consider leaving healthcare and coming into transportation specialty finance? And I just looked at him and said, you know, I don't know anything about transportation or specialty finance, right? And I'll never forget what he said. He says, no, but you like to win, don't you? And that was true. And I walked away from that meeting intrigued enough to meet with his board. And he set those meetings up. So one-on-one, I met with each board member, fell in love with the culture, really enjoyed the people. And um, I wanted to work for a publicly traded company. I wanted to have that investor analyst experience, quarterly earnings calls, um, I just wanted to have that that quiver, you know, that arrow in the quiver. So um, that's how that happened, Glenn, is just a, a, an invitation to breakfast, lots of conversations, lots of prayer. And then ultimately I accepted it knowing that I could fail, you know, because jumping industries is hard. And I sought a lot of counsel. And what most people told me that turned out to be true is 70% of what you know is going to transfer, leading transfers, 30% of what you no, won't. And you better learn that 30% as fast as you can, especially if you're in the CEO seat. So that's what I had to try and do. Well, amazing. Yeah. Amazing work. I, I just, uh, uh, one takeaway for sure for our listeners, if you're the CEO of a company and you are not familiar with YPO um, that uh, Jeff mentioned, uh, check it out. Uh, it is a great, great organization and networking organization. Uh, back to Triumph, uh, any particular businesses or deals that you can talk about that uh, are uh, are complete and, uh, and that are part of your portfolio and work? Yeah, well, let me start with just what the business is because I didn't really cover that. It's it's a fascinating uh, business for a bank to be in because, you know, all around this country, there's there's entrepreneurs everywhere. And I guess what I hadn't really taken into account up until being in this business is, you know, the early growth stage entrepreneurs, they're not credit worthy. Uh, they can't go to a bank and get a loan. They don't have audited financials. They don't oftentimes have very good projections about what the future is going to look like. And yet if they're running a good business, they're trying to grow and they need working capital. So we focus on the trucking industry and you have, uh, we have 12,000 trucking company uh, clients. And these companies are, are growth companies. A lot of them, you know, year over year growth would, would rival anything you've seen anywhere. But they, they haul loads and they, they have their customers are really big companies like Coca-Cola, uh, Nike, and they can dictate payment terms like 30, 60 days. Well, if you're running a trucking company and you complete the haul, you need capital to buy your next tank of diesel and take your next load. And if you multiply that times two trucks, 10 trucks, 100 trucks, 500 trucks, which is the size of some of our customers, um, there's a real working capital crunch, and we step in and provide that. So, you know, we'll buy that account receivable from them. It creates immediate liquidity for them. And then we have the patience to track down ultimate payment from the Nike and, and the shipper. Um, we can afford to go 45 days or 30 days or 60 days or whatever. It's just all part of the the agreement. Love that. Well, you talked about how important it is for a CEO to learn and to continue to develop and to learn quickly. 
you've you've also completed what some would say are several unorthodox leadership programs that we alluded to in the intro. Tell us a little bit more about those and what you experienced and, and what you learned. Yeah, so I'll, I'll just tell you uh, if we have time for one or two. Um, and Glenn, what you mentioned earlier about YPO is so true. Both of the experiences I'm about to describe were things that I gained access to through YPO. I, I could never have walked on to the SEAL base in Coronado and knocked on the gate and said, you know, I want to go through through this experience. Um, the first one was with the SEALs in, in Coronado. And what YPO set up was uh, a four-day, basically, leadership crucible where, you know, you train for, for months. You have to meet certain speeds and strengths. And, you know, they give you a curriculum and you have to turn in your time just to be considered. So they take 30 people from around the world. Uh, I was fortunate enough to to be selected and, and go into that. And it was one of the most unbelievable leadership experiences ever because you have 30 CEOs, some of them leading enormously big companies, all of them used to being in control, none of them being used to being yelled at. And they take everything away from you, everything, <laughs> your phone, your watch. You don't know what time it is. There's no agenda. They communicate virtually nothing to you. And for four days, they effectively put you through what feels and looks a lot like Hell Week that that the BUDS classes go through. And through the entire thing, they're trying to emphasize their version of leadership and teamwork. And you figure it out really, really fast. Um, the experience I had, I didn't sleep for three nights. You're hallucinating by night one. It's constantly on the go. Everybody takes a rotation as a leader, and they're constantly grading and assessing what kind of a leader you are under stress, under great stress, physical, mental, all the different kinds. And then at the very end, the SEALs sit you down and they give you very unfiltered feedback in colorful language that many people probably aren't used to hearing. And it was one of the, the best experiences ever, Glenn and Jacob, because the I came back with a completely reformed version of teamwork and the ethos that they were able to instill in just a few days. And I mean, I want to be real clear. What I went through in four days is nothing compared to what they go through. There's just no comparison. But they gave us a taste. And the taste was strong enough that it it reorients you about what you're capable of and how teams should work together. So it was unbelievably good. In fact, I came back and I, I finagled with the group that administers it out of Coronado I was able to send back a couple members of my management team because I wanted them to go through it. And they did. And they all graduated and survived. But it was you walk out of that with a very different view of how teams can and should work together. And one of the one of the interesting things is, you know, close bonds and the ability to overcome. It's best formed if they go through pain together. So, you know, it's the hard times that form real connection and glue between people not just a series of good times one after another. So, um, and healthcare offered plenty of hard times, Glenn, as you know, to, to fashion that. Well, I've got, I've got two, two follow-ups to that then. Uh, just two for right now. We may, we may jump into more. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Did you agree with their assessment of you uh, at the end of it? And then two, what was the hardest thing you did during those four days? Yeah. So there, so I didn't really, I didn't really stand out good or bad. Like I was in the middle of the pack anytime we had okay. to run. So I never drew like crazy criticism. I knew better from the first second not to pop off to them or have attitude. There were people who did and they paid dearly for it. 
Um, but I also wasn't the fastest. I mean, there were, there were people there who were triathletes that had been training, taking cold showers for six months, just getting conditioned to the icy waters. And I didn't do all that. So I was more in the middle of the pack. And, you know, the feedback that they gave me was don't be in the middle, you know, move more towards the front. And I mean, I accepted that. I'm like, okay, you know, I, that's, that's great feedback. Um, all in all, I think they were pretty kind with me. They didn't have a lot of criticisms, just try to keep moving to the front of the pack. And the toughest thing, uh, I think for me, um, there was a night where, uh, through a course of events, we, we swam the San Diego Bay and it was really cold. There were jellyfish. Uh, I was hallucinating and it took three and a half hours to, to get across to the other side. And one of the things that they tried to instill in us is you always want to win. You, you know, it pays to be a winner. They would say that over and over again. And so my team of six, that, that was a permanent fixture throughout the experience, um, we won. And when we got to the other side, I don't know what I was thinking. I thought I saw a bonfire. I was probably hallucinating. I thought there was going to be pizza. <laughs> you know, just like, but the, the hardest part was landing on the other side of the water winning and expecting to receive some benefit of winning. And I think we went into, you know, 60 minutes of just nonstop, you know, physical training. Like there was no payoff for winning. It came later. It was deferred. But that was probably the hardest thing was making that swim. It, they put that on an agenda. I wouldn't have gone. Like there's so many things they did or had us do that had it been written on a piece of paper in advance, I don't think anyone would have gone because you would have said, I can't do that. And yet you look back on the experience and you're able to do everything. And that's, that's one of the lessons is you're, you're capable of so much more than you think. Wow. Wow. I know we were traveling not long after that experience uh, with you and Emily, and I, I, I know it was just a, such a meaningful and powerful time. Uh, I, I, one question I've got to ask, and I meant to ask you when you were telling us about this initially, uh, did anybody drop out? Very few, because most of the people who were there were the you know couple standard deviations out on type A, but we did have a couple <laughs> people end up in in the hospital. So like if you if you if you fudged your numbers around your athletic training and within the first 15 minutes, you, you know, there was people falling out. So you, you had a very small percentage, probably less than certainly less than 20% that for medical reasons couldn't continue, but they had the bell that you could ring and no one rang the bell. No one quit. If people ended it, they ended it because their, their body couldn't go on. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know, it's an interesting lesson. That, I mean, I think that's such a powerful lesson. I mean, I, listen, I don't want to go swimming, but uh, it, the the deferred victory, right, or or, or the deferred prize. Uh, I think that's a, a great analogy into leadership, business, life, parenting, whatever you want to, you know, chalk it up to. A lot of times, I think we expect immediate gratification, and a lot of times it's deferred. And a lot of times, you may not even see it, right? I mean, mm -hmm. uh, as leaders of organizations. You may never see it. Uh, it may be the person uh, two times behind you that, that reaps that benefit. And so uh, I think that's a great, a great principle. Yeah. Well, Jeff, I know faith is a real important piece of your life and uh, in your makeup. Tell our listeners how your faith has played out various roles uh, that in, in your life uh, through the different leadership opportunities that you've had. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, let me let me kind of go back a little bit because you know I think one of the things around faith and story that really get intertwined for me was, you know, I grew up in an environment where the fatherless who lived with a mother who, um, a single mother with no college degree, I mean, the stats are just terrible. It's five times more likely to commit suicide, 14 more times more likely to become a rapist, 20 times more likely to end up in prison. I mean, the, the statistics are just daunting. And my brother and I both navigated that. And, you know, I didn't become a believer in Jesus Christ until I was 15. So I had 15 years of those statistics. And even once becoming a believer, I had this bizarre chip on my shoulder because it was so hard doing life without a dad. I mean, I didn't have a single memory of him, and I didn't even know his name, and it was this black void, and I had kind of some underlying trauma. Um, you know, an example of that was for no good reason, I was terrified of being hit in the face. Like I couldn't explain it because I didn't know all these things that had happened to me. So, you know, in a rough neighborhood or playing football or whatever, guys punch each other. They, they, they clown around, it gets rough. And I was athletic and big and strong and I had this bizarre fear of getting hit. So, you know, there's all these things that a dad is supposed to do for his children, whether it's a daughter or a son. And not having all that, I just had this chip. And where it's just turned into a really amazing faith component story is, you know, when I found all this out at 47, what I discovered, and I don't know why God let me wait till I was 47 to find out all the details, but, you know, I have 13 half-siblings scattered all over the country. Um, and when you can fashion together the picture of what almost all of those lives look like, violent crime, prison. Um, one of my half-siblings thought it was a good idea to shoot it out with a SWAT team. With, with I mean, it's just these decisions and choices that, for the most part, came out of this man as father. That chip went away because what the story reoriented itself around was a rescue. And there's no way I could have appreciated the rescue until I saw the detail of what he rescued me from. So the gratitude, the just the deep and abiding gratitude to God for getting me out of that uh, has just been crazy. And, you know, now really I look back on that beginning. I look back on, you know, all the things that we went through. And then I look at where I am now. And it's, you know, it's 1 Corinthians one twenty seven. You know, God chooses the low-born things in this world, the things that are discarded, the broken things, the things that don't look good. And he uses them, and he does improbable, almost impossible things with them because it just demonstrates how great he is. So, so much of what's gone well in my life has been that. And that makes it easy not to take credit for anything. It's God displaying his goodness. And, you know, in my case, he took something very, very improbable and very broken and discarded. And and that's where he's done it. Um, the other thing, you know, Glenn, is because I didn't grow up with a dad, I've really leaned into the father part of the Trinity a lot. And, you know, Psalm 68, you know, a father to the fatherless. Uh, man, I can't comment on anybody else's relationship with God. I don't know how it works, but 
there's been many moments where I could have gone left or right and I went left and it just turned out to be blessing. And I could have gone the other direction and it would have been disaster. And, you know, I think he has a special place in his heart for the fatherless. And that plays in here too. So, um, man, my faith is so important to me, but it's, it's, it's a very practical, almost a survival thing, the way it's worked. And, you know, had I not at 15 years old had somebody ask me an honest question about if I know what happens to me when I die, um, my job, I think my life would have just turned out so differently. So um, it's, it's, it's gratitude, Glenn, more than anything. Wow. Wow. Well, one thing that Jacob, you and me have in common, uh, we're all married to incredible women. And uh, how did you meet Emily? Oh, I had this amazing chocolate lab. And I mean, he was like the best chocolate lab ever. And I got a random call one day, Glenn, from some lady I don't know. She's a, she was a lawyer's wife. And she said, I got your name from my vet, who is also your vet, because you have an amazingly handsome chocolate lab. And I'd like to breed my dog with your dog. And there's the strangest call. I'm like, sure. You know, I'd never done this before and neither had my dog. So we got the dogs together and, you know, you get them together a couple times and she kept saying, I have this niche you have to meet. And that never ends well. You know, like that's, that's, right, that's, right, you talk about right. improbable odds, you know, that's going to be a terrible outcome. So I didn't want any part of it. And, you know, on, on the other side, she's telling Emily, you know, you, you ought to meet this guy who we're breeding our dog with. And she didn't want any part of it either. I mean, imagine that narrative. Yeah. Yeah. This sounds great. So just by chance, she, brought Emily with her to pick up the dogs the last time they were together. She didn't tell Emily what was going on and, and didn't obviously didn't tell me. And that's when we met in like the first meeting, you know, the sparks flew. So, well, they did for me. And it took a couple of weeks for Emily to agree to, for me to contact her. And then once we talked on the phone, first conversation was probably two, three hours. I hung up the phone and I wasn't ready to get married, but I knew I just talked to my wife and I was like, man, Wow. So that's how we met in 22 years in October. Uh, I love, love it. it. Love it. Well, <clears throat> we talked about how important your faith is uh, and, and uh, you know, father, father to the fatherless. I know for a long time, I know COVID has interrupted a little bit of this, but you've been a part of uh, making annual trips to San Jose, Costa Rica, Costa Rica to build homes for impoverished Nicaraguan refugees. Tell us about this organization. Tell us about your trips. Tell us about some of those memories that stand out. Yeah, so this is a great organization called Youth with a Mission or YWAM. It's a global organization. And there's kind of like different regions of that that organization. And there's one that's based out of Baja, California. And they've focused so much of their ministry on building these homes for the poor. And these are super interesting homes. They're freestanding, very simple electricity. Uh, no plumbing, but you can complete the build in 48 hours, you know, start to finish the foundations laid, but everything else is just there. So what they'll do is they orchestrate these, you know, 48 hour builds where people fly into these countries. And I was first introduced to this by, by YPO, you know, they, they connect with YPO and bring YPOers into different parts of the world to do this. And it was just the coolest thing. Um, we were immediately hooked. 
you know, I'll give you an example. So I could tell my, at the time, you know, seven-year-old son that he should eat whatever is put in front of him because there's a, there's somebody starving in another country who would eat that without saying a word. And, you know, a seven-year-old just kind of listens to you and may or may not get it. It's a whole other game when you're in a third world country and you all bring in blimpy sandwiches for the work crew and for the families you're building for. And your son opens up his sandwich and he looks at you and says, I don't like tomatoes. And then he looks at the boy his age who we're building the home for and he's eating it without even looking what's inside because he hasn't eaten in two days. And I never had to bring that up again. So those, I mean, those lessons are so impactful just for the entire family. Um, when you hand the keys to the family you built for at the end of the 48 hours, you know, everybody's hugging everybody. I mean, there's just tears everywhere. You pray with the family. Um, you know, you, you give them a Bible and you connect them to a local church and you pray that what you've just done has completely shifted the trajectory of their life because, you know, whether it's education or health, you know, the trajectory of your life, if you're in a safe, secure home is so different than if you're leave, uh, living in a shack uh, with you know with no secure doors and you know you get rained on and get all kinds of respiratory diseases and everything else so it's just a life changer for them and for those who go wow how many homes do you think you've been a part of building well the um, the way it works is every time you go you focus on the one house you're assigned to so if I've got it. been ten times I've had a part in building ten homes but there's multiple home sites going all the time. You might have as sure. many as five or six going, and they've pretty well engineered the number of people you need to have on each home and how many adults and how many kids and how those ratios work. But it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's also heartbreaking because you will see, you know, especially when we were in an area called Pavas in, in San Jose, Costa Rica, you know, when it starts to get dusk and it's time for us to leave because the sun's going to go down, you start to see, uh, you know, 12 and 13 year old girls start showing up wearing way too much makeup and, you know, they're being prostituted in many cases by their parents. So it's just, it's heartbreaking when you see that side of the darkness in the world. Um, you know, the group we go with usually goes house to house and passes out, uh, you know, biblical tracts and hands Bibles that are obviously in Spanish and things like that. And, you can engage with them, and you have an interpreter. It's it's just an amazing experience. Wow, wow! Generational impact for sure. That's amazing, um, Jeff. Uh, truly, as one of our more fascinating guests, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to this next part. We're not going to let you go before we uh, dive into the rapid fire questions. So, uh, Dad, you want to lead off with the first one? You bet, Jeff. Best and worst advice you've ever received. The best advice and the worst advice. Well, I'll give you the best advice first, and Glenn, you know the gentleman Lindsey Bradley who gave this to me, and and it was career advice. And he said, "The job is never yours. It's just your turn, and your turn will come to an end, and it'll be somebody else's turn, and you hope that they come and do things." take it further than you ever could, and then it'll become your turn somewhere else. But hold on to this loosely. Don't make it your identity. Don't make it your thing that you have to hold on to and protect forever. It's just your turn. Um, worst advice, and this is going to maybe be counterintuitive, but I think it's bad advice when somebody tells me you deserve to be happy. 
And, and, and I think happiness is good. I'm not, I'm not bashing on happiness, but there's so many other things you should seek first that may have elements that aren't making you happy, but they're making you holy or they're making you more noble. I mean, I think the pursuit of happiness is the number one objective and that we all deserve this quest to reach the, the, the finish line of happiness. I think it robs us of, of joy and I think it robs us of different kinds of fulfillment and I mean, I got lots of happy moments in my life, but I've heard from so many of my friends, if I'm in a tough spot, hey, you just deserve to be happy. And usually it feels like it's a very self-driven objective that probably could leave a lot of carnage in the background. Yeah. Wow. That's good. Yeah. Two things. First, uh, for our friends in East Texas, uh, perhaps you know Lindsey Bradley. He was the CEO at Trinity Mother Francis for a long number of years and still is very active in healthcare, serving on the board of Christus, uh, a large healthcare organization. And then, and Jeff, I love how you made the point that happiness is very different than joy. The Lord never promises us happiness. Uh, he does promise us joy. And that's really, as you pointed out, just uh, finding peace and comfort and enjoying the moments that the good Lord has given us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Well, Jeff, tell us who the most influential people in your life are. Oh, super easy. It would be my grandparents and my mother. Um, they, mm-hmm. the formative years, I mean, I had my grandfather. If you saw a few good men, he was very similar to Jack Nicholson's character. So, you know, imagine having that, that gentleman on your shoulder and my mom being the, you know, the hippie free spirit on the other side of the shoulder. What a gift, right? To have those two different perspectives uh, coaching did, you. Did grandma, did grandma play tiebreaker between the two? I think grandma might have been the most angelic of them all. I mean, she was one of the more amazing women. And, you know, I think that probably is the one person that prayed me to salvation. That's probably the one person that, Every day of my life, uh, until the end of hers, prayed for me, and and it's 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 born fruit. Love that. Wow. Well, this one's going to be a good one because I know you personally, and Jeff, you are a risk taker. So, when was the last time you took a risk? And tell our listeners how that worked out. Yeah. So, I mean, a big risk is to jump industries, right? To look at, I could have stayed uh, within healthcare and, and and the part of healthcare I was in for the rest of my career. I could have ridden that safely into the sunset and and I didn't. And, you know, it's it's paid off in the time that I've been the Triumph Business Capital. We've had so many things go well, but, you know, on every metric, and this was a 16-year-old business when I got here, but along every metric, it's either doubled, tripled, or quadrupled. I mean, whether you're looking at revenue, pre-tax earnings, number of customers, I mean, we've been extremely blessed and it is, it's a joy to jump industries and see things work out and what you knew how to do wasn't just specific to one industry. It's something that you can transcend to others. So that gives you confidence, you know, the next time you have to make that kind of consideration. So it's, it's been awesome. Good words. Yeah. yeah. Well, tell us about the best or most meaningful place you've ever visited. Oh, that's easy. Um, that's Auschwitz and not, not the best, but certainly the most meaningful and um, I went once and it just took my breath away. I mean, the scale, the sophistication, um, the engineered cruelty is almost beyond. I mean, it just reminds you what human beings can do to each other. Sophisticated, educated human beings can do to each other. And it was it was so moving. A couple of years later, I organized another trip back there. And through YPO, I was able to 
bring with me about 20 couples who were all of Jewish descent, who had all lost family members there but had never been. So to rewalk those steps with with them was mm. one of the more the most meaningful trip I've ever taken. But um, not beautiful, not not rosy. But I, I think every person should go there and just see with your own eyes what what men are capable of. Well, well not a happy place, Mm-mm. but definitely on the bucket list. Uh, thank you, Jeff. How about the best and worst job you've ever had? Best job, worst job? Yeah, best job was early in my career, um, going before I got to VHA, I worked for a company called MD Byline, and they provided medical device, uh, capital equipment, coaching to hospitals. And it was so cool. I was in my mid-20s. I got there. I moved up quickly. And, you know, I'm a 27-year-old young leader and I find myself responsible for uh, multiple lines of business in New York, Boston, Chicago. And because of the company's reputation, not mine, I could pick up the phone and get a meeting with the CEO of GE, Siemens, all the big companies, all the mid-sized companies, and they would take the meeting and have their teams. And what that did for me, which what made it the coolest job, is when you see four or five companies a week, over the course of several years, you just get this really cool cultural barometer. You can almost feel the health of the company. And that served me so well later as I started interacting and doing business with companies. Um, I just don't think anybody gets that experience at that age. It was it was unbelievable. And I'm super grateful for it. Worst job was the job I took when my mom lost hers. Dishwashing is not ideal. <laughs> I mean, it's... <laughs> yes. It, it it's tough work. It's late work, and then and then to get up and go to high school uh, the next day. Yeah, right. Yeah, I, yeah. Mean, I, I had to give up football because I just couldn't make it. But yeah, it was, it was, it was tough. Now, fortunately, I didn't have to do it a really long time. My mom eventually found another job, and I could I could let that one go. But there was a season for sure, and uh, and I knew I never wanted to go back to that. And if that meant figuring out a way to get to college, that became you know the must have. Wow. What book are you reading right now? I'm reading an awesome book. I just started it. I'm in the second chapter. It's called Resilience by John Eldridge. You may have um, read some of his other books like Wild at Heart or Walking with God. Uh, I'm a big fan of his. I'm a big fan of almost anything he writes. And this is a spectacular book. That's great. Well, Jeff, how about in addition to the Bible, best book you've ever read? Best book you've ever read? Probably the most applicable book. I mean, the one that I went through and I did the exercises and it and it made a significant difference was a book called True North by Bill George. And uh, you may recall his name. He's a Harvard Business School professor now, but he was the CEO of Medtronic. And it's it's a fascinating book that takes you wherever you are and suggests that you don't you don't cultivate your best leadership potential by emulating what you see other people do. You have to connect it into your own genuine story because that genuine leadership based on who you really are and the strengths of your story is what people really want to follow, not you replicating what you thought would work. So it's a great book. Well, final question. What's next for Jeff Brenner? Oh, man, I got so much to learn. I have so many areas in my life I got to grow. So um, I'm not anywhere near a finish line or a victory lap. I, I mean, I just need to keep going forward. So I'm excited about the journey, but I'm nowhere near finished. So I got, I got to keep going. 
I love it. I love it. We we, uh, we look forward to watching uh, to see what the next chapter is hold for you. <laughs> Jeff, thank you so much uh, for being on our show today. Wow, it's just an honor, privilege, and a pleasure uh, to talk to you. So thanks for being here. You bet. The, the privilege is all mine. Thank you both. To our listeners, uh, we're going to have all the links to Jeff's info in the show notes below. Uh, and as always, thanks for listening. Our guest today, Jeff Brenner, the Chief Executive Officer of Triumph Business Capital. Thanks so much, Jeff, for being with us. We've really been looking forward to this for some time, and please give our best to Emily and to the boys. And to our listeners, thank you for joining in today. Share our podcast with others and follow us along on our Instagram account. And until next time, keep chasing what matters. 